I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no attempts to start up local study groups. This is Try a Little Understanding. Okay, much like our radio show episode, a show on contactee Daniel Fry has long been on my list of topics, and there's been some pretty significant clamor from listeners. I'd held off for a few reasons, primarily is the fact that DanielFry.com exists. This website is a treasure trove of every available Dan Fry resource you can imagine, including the text of books and literally hundreds of issues of his newsletter, Understanding, which ran from 1956 to 1989. There's also a lot of his output out there, and and, and this just all seemed daunting to me, kind of like the Orfeo Angelucci episode. Also, whenever I'd try to read Fry's stuff, it just didn't connect with me somehow. I really never had any idea why. Um, after this episode, I absolutely do. So I've been putting this episode off for a while, but no longer. Let's look at Daniel Fry and the saucer empire he built over the course of several decades. One acknowledgement I want to make right off to the bat is to the creator of DanielFry.com, Sean Donovan. Donovan has done a remarkable job compiling massive amounts of material on the site. He's also written a biography of Fry called Contact E. Was Daniel W. Fry telling the truth, which was invaluable in creating the following very compact summary of Daniel Fry's pre-saucer life. Daniel Fry was born on July 19, 1908 in Verdon Township, Aitken County, Minnesota. As of the 2000 census, the township's population was 44, not 4,400, not 44,000, just 44. It's a small place. The family lived a meager life in a log cabin on the banks of the Mississippi River, and it was a rough childhood in general for Dan. The family moved into a house they built a couple years after he was born, but in late 1914, this house burned down. Fry's mother Clara had chronic medical problems, and Dan's father Fred struggled to find decent work wherever he could. For these and a variety of other reasons, there were many times when the family members had to live apart from each other. It was during one of these periods that... Um, Clara, his mother, died. It was the summer of 1916, and she died of a cardiac arrest, saving her daughter from drowning uh, as Daniel watched from the shore. Not great. The Fry children lived with their grandparents while their father continued to take work wherever he could. While working in Washington, D.C. on a construction job, Fred Fry, Dan's father, died in 1918, a victim of the global influenza outbreak. The next year, the Fry children, along with their now-widowed grandmother and their uncle, left Minnesota for California. Dan graduated from high school in 1928 and soon began learning the electrical trade and reading books on chemistry to expand his knowledge. This chemistry knowledge led to jobs doing explosive work, and he married his first wife, Elma, in 1934. Throughout the 1930s, Fry continued to do blasting work as well as working as a fire suppression foreman for the California Forestry Department. For a while, he and Elma ran a cafe as well. During World War II, Fry worked for a short time at Lockheed at the same time as George Van Tassel, interestingly, and continued his blasting work, uh, getting jobs as far away as Honduras, where he worked on the Pan American Highway. 
He also got involved in rocketry during this time. After the war, the family moved to Oregon, where Dan worked in logging, but still kept his hand in the rocketry field in his spare time. In 1949, Fry began working for Aerojet at the White Sands Missile Test Range in New Mexico. While at White Sands, Fry became a contactee. While Fry would chronicle these events in books, beginning with a book called The White Sands Incident, which was published in 1954, he first told his story that year at George Van Tassel's Giant Rock UFO Convention. In discussing Fry's contacts, we will follow our normal procedure of examining Fry's work sort of in the order the saucer-loving public would have encountered them as much as possible. The copy of the White Sands Incident I have is a later one, which incorporates some additional material, as we'll see. But first, let's look at the About the Author section. These are always really helpful for getting an idea of how a contactee framed themselves for their audience. By the way, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning, we're trying some different things with the sort of primary source segments of the show, just messing around with with some things and, and trying some different things. So these might sound a little different than what you've been used to, and they might be different than what you hear next time, because we're trying to find things and your feedback is, as always, um, well, we can't stop you from providing feedback, but no, really, we do. We do value it. So um, about the author, about Dan Fry, what does he say about himself? There was little to distinguish his childhood and early youth from that of any other normal American boy, except perhaps that his craving for knowledge, especially scientific knowledge, was out of all proportion to the natural curiosity of the young boy. His parents had left practically no estate, and at the age of 18 he found himself entirely dependent upon his own resources. He completed his high school training and attempted to go on to college, but because of the Great Depression, which was then causing a desperate competition for all types of employment, he found it impossible to support himself while attending school. Realizing that he might never have the opportunity of matriculation at a recognized seat of learning, he thereupon instituted a night school class of one in the textbook and reference section of the Pasadena Public Library. He became especially interested in the chemistry and use of explosives, with the result that he became an explosives technician and blaster. He followed this trade until it eventually led him into the field of rocketry. Mr. Fry has been employed for the last five years by Aerojet General Corporation, the world's largest developers and manufacturers of rocket engines. During the years of 1940 and 1950, Mr. Fry spent most of his time at the White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico, where he was engaged in setting up instrumentation for the testing of a series of very large motors. So, what jumps out here? What strikes you? How does Fry present himself to the readers? Sorry, I'm slipping into classroom mode here, but think about it. There's some things that do sort of stand out, don't they? He's a self-made man, a self-taught man. There are no overtones of a a spiritual or even conventionally religious background. He's a man of technology and of science and has the job history to prove it. Dan's a nuts and bolts guy. It's interesting, perhaps, that he summarizes his early years as being that of a normal American boy, when in fact his childhood was beset by numerous tragedies, disruptions, and deprivations. I, I do applaud his restraint in that. I do not applaud the way this is fantastically sort of overwritten. Realizing that he might never have the opportunity of matriculation at a recognized seat of learning could be much more clearly stated as realizing he might never go to college. But 
I, I quibble. The publisher, Franklin Thomas, echoes this sentiment of, of you know, Dan Fry as self-made man in his own preface to the book. Were it not for the fact that Mr. Fry is a highly trained technician and rocket expert fully conversant with all scientific import and value of his unusual experience, one might wonder if he had correctly observed or interpreted all the facts. It is extremely fortunate that there can be no question of Mr. Fry's competence to accurately observe and evaluate facts. While Mr. Fry is a self-made man, what he lacks in academic education is amply compensated for by his innate fitness for scientific and technological study and research. It is to this younger generation of technicians, engineers, and physicists that civilization must look for its future advancement, for they are less hampered by the stereotyped and outmoded concepts of a bygone day. Many of them are self-made, and hence are more resourceful and pliant in the face of the new and unknown, which is now fast becoming the domain of modern physics, which is in the process of embracing parapsychology and metaphysics, as the investigation of matter inevitably leads into the realm of the imponderables. I had to try recording that several times to read it as it was originally written and not try to make it make more sense. So, um... Franklin Thomas, this editor, publisher, uh, mentions an unusual experience. What was that unusual experience? Fry wastes no time and doesn't tease his readers. These are the opening sentences of the White Sands incident. White Sands Proving Grounds, July 4th, 1950. Tonight, I joined the ranks of the FSB, Flying Saucer Believers. Not only have I seen one, I have touched it, entered it, and ridden in it. Also, if I can still trust my senses, I've communicated at some length with the operators. The improbability of the event is so great that I've almost begun to doubt my own sanity. Naturally, if I were to attempt to convince anyone else that I rode in a saucer tonight, I would soon find myself occupying a nicely padded cell in the nearest booby hatch. Still, this is the greatest event in my life, and I can't keep it entirely to myself, so I'm writing this down exactly as it happened while it is still sharp and clear in my memory. Straight to the point, and just like every other post-Adamski contactee, Fry makes sure to tell us that he was the first one to beat a spaceman. And even that 1950 date would be moved back to 1949 in later retellings of the story. So here's the basic rundown of what happened. Dan had wanted to go into Las Cruces for the 4th of July festivities. Okay, this is a funny story. I once got breakfast at a McDonald's in Las Cruces, and I think it was the one just off US 70 on the east side of town. And not only was that not funny, it, it probably doesn't qualify as a story, but that was just as interesting as Dan's Independence Day was going to be because he misread the bus schedule and wasn't able to actually go into town. He was, in his own words, quote, stranded in an almost deserted army camp with nothing whatever to do except sit in my room and read a textbook on heat transfer, end quote. Now, the air conditioner in his quarters stopped working, and to get some fresh air, he decided to go for a walk. While on his walk in the White Sands area, he spotted an object in the sky. He described it as, quote, an ovate spheroid about 30 feet in diameter. It came into land, and Dan approached it. It was as it had appeared from the air, a spheroid considerably flattened at the top and bottom so that the vertical dimension was about 16 feet, while the horizontal diameter was about 30 feet at the widest point, which was about 7 feet above the ground. 
Its curvature was such that if viewed from below, at an angle of less than 45 degrees from the vertical, it might appear to be saucer-shaped, although it was shaped more like a soup bowl inverted over a sauce dish. It was a polished metal surface, silver color. I walked completely around the craft without seeing any sign of openings or seams. If there's anyone inside, I thought, they must get in through the top or bottom. His curiosity getting the better of him, Dan reaches out to touch it. But lo, a voice spake from somewhere. Better not touch the hull, pal. It's still hot. There it is. One of the most quoted lines from all of contactee lore. What's often missed is the aftermath. Dan is startled by the voice, stumbles backward and trips, falling onto the ground. You could have turned the volume down, I grumbled. You didn't have to blast out at me like that. Blast out? The voice hesitated. Oh, you mean the amplitude of the warning was too great. Sorry, buddy, but you were about to kill yourself and there wasn't time to diddle with controls. I really love this weird sort of thing where the saucer guy is confused by colloquialisms, then just sort of lapses into colloquialisms half a second later. And the saucer fella explains that by hot, he meant that the ship's deflector shield that sort of protects the ship as it travels through space which I swear Gene Roddenberry stole for the deflector shield idea in Star Trek, um, that that's what he meant by hot, that this was still active. Dan asks why the saucer pilot voice, whatever, sounds like, quote, a yank, rather than, I don't know, a British person or a German or whatever. The fact that you believed me to be one of your countrymen is a testimonial to the success of the effort I've expended during the last two of your years to learn and practice the use of your language and idiom. As a matter of fact, I have never yet set foot upon your planet. It will require at least four more years of, or of your years, for me to become adapted to your atmosphere and gravity and to become immunized to your biotics. That's... Actually, how I proposed to the saucer wife, I said, Darling, if you'll have me, I would like to become immunized to your biotics. Not really. Um, So the mixing up of colloquialisms makes sense here, doesn't it? He's learning how to sound like an American, learning how to sound like somebody that Fry would not be too disturbed by. This is a nice touch, and this is sort of how we can tell that we're in the second wave of contact ebooks here in the mid to later 1950s. There's sort of a, an obvious attempt to address some of the logical flaws of earlier books, going out of the way to explain how Saucer Boy here plans to fit in, and showing that it's not necessarily an easy process. And the the mention of, of being adapted to atmosphere and gravity and becoming immunized to um, to the biotics of Earth sort of you know, differentiates this from the, the the sort of, well, they're just humans like us, only from Venus strand of contactism. The saucer pilot also explains that Fry has a special mind, and this is what compelled them to reach out to him. That air conditioner in his quarters did not break down by accident. It was part of a plan to bring Fry out where he would see the craft. At this point, The White Sands incident heads into elaborate explanation territory, and suddenly, I'm reminded of why Fry's stuff has never appealed to me quite as much as other contactees' works have. Here's an example. A man seeking scientific knowledge is like an ant climbing a tree. 
He knows when he's moving upward, but his vision is too short to encompass the entire trunk. The result is that he is likely to get out on a lower limb without realizing that he has left the main trunk. All goes well for a time. He can still climb upward and even pluck a few of the fruits of his progress, but soon he begins to become confused as the solid branch suddenly begins to break up into myriads of twigs and leaves all pointing in different directions. So the seeker of knowledge finds that the great basic laws, which have always been so unshakable, now begin to divide and to point in opposite directions. The scientist comes to the conclusion that he's nearing the limit of his knowledge, which can be conceived by the mind, and that all physical laws ultimately become purely statistical. When he has reached this point, he can make further progress only by following a line of abstract mathematical reasoning. This is like traveling on a train in one of your subways. You'll probably eventually arrive at your destination, but since you cannot see where you're going along the way, you have no way of being sure there was not a much shorter and easier way to get to the same place. Your science is now in this position. Now, the space people can help us, can instruct our scientists in how to move beyond that position, but there are some conditions. Before we can be of any assistance to the people of Earth, two things must be accomplished. First, our bodies must become biologically adapted to your environment so that when we come among you, we will be identical with your people. This, as I said before, will require at least four more years. The second condition is more difficult. The political tensions which now exist between your nations must be eased. If either of the two dominant nations of Earth were to achieve conclusive scientific superiority over the other, under present conditions, a war of extermination would be certain to follow. We are not here to assist any nation in making war, but to stimulate a degree of progress which will eliminate the reasons for wars on Earth, even as we, some thousands of years ago, eliminated the reasons for conflict among our own people. But I see you are becoming weary of standing out here in the sand and listening to these dissertations on science and sociology. It's like the spaceman is reading my mind. I am indeed weary of listening to these dissertations on science and sociology. This is an interesting wrinkle on the usual prime directive style of, of reason the Space Brothers can't help us. Here, it's not because we need to learn for ourselves, but rather that they will help us once we improve to a certain point. And then we learn a little more about what's going on. The person to whom Dan is talking is not on the craft, which is a remote-controlled sort of cargo carrier. That guy is really on a mothership 900 miles up. Dan is invited for a ride, which he accepts. He enters the craft, and it's pretty spartan, but as we're going to see, it's speedy. It's plain, but you'll find the seat comfortable, said the voice. Step in and take a seat if you wish to ride. We don't have too much time. Almost automatically, I stepped up onto the floor of the cabin and started for one of the seats. Instinctively, I half-turned as though to leap out to the comparative safety of the open desert behind me, but the door was already closed. If this was a trap, I was now in it, and there was no use struggling against the inevitable. "'Where'd you like to go?' came the voice again. "'I don't know how far you can take me in the time you have,' I replied. "'If you'd like a suggestion, we can take you to New York City and return you here in about thirty minutes.' To New York City and back in 30 minutes, I said. That's 8,000 miles per hour. How can you produce energies of that order on a craft like this? And how can I stand the acceleration? You don't even have seatbelts on these seats. You won't feel any ill effects from the acceleration, was the reply. In fact, you won't feel the acceleration at all. Just take a seat 
and I'll start the craft and I'll explain some of the things that puzzle you during the ride. Among those puzzling things are questions of gravity and transparent metals and things like that. And there's nothing about the culture of the spaceman's people, as we usually see in contactee stories like this. There's no, on my planet, we live like this, and our houses are shaped like this, and I have 15 wives, and all of them love me and feed me fruit. There's nothing like that. Rather, we get lots of talk about magnetic propulsion and gravity and the like. And as the journey to New York and back comes to an end, we learn that the spaceman's name is Elon, pronounced Alan, or spelled Alan, pronounced Elon. We know the pronunciation from radio interviews and recordings of Fry's speeches. But those sort of auditory sort of reminders or, or explanations of how to pronounce Elon come later. And I kind of wonder if Fry intended the spaceman's name to actually be Alan, but decided at some point that it didn't sound spacey enough. At the close of this conversation, Fry notices a design on the back of the seat cushion, a tree and a serpent. He comments on it as being familiar, claiming, quote, it is found in the original inscriptions and legends of every race on earth. It has always seemed to me to be a peculiarly earthly symbol, and it was startling to see it appear from the depths of space or from whatever planet you call home, end quote. Elon isn't thrilled that Fry noticed this, but he does offer an explanation that opens up some fun possibilities. These are things that I'd hoped to put off until our next contact, Alan said. There's so much to tell in so little time. Our ancestors came originally from this earth. They had built a great empire and a mighty science upon the continent which your legends call Mu, or Lemuria. At the same time, there was also a great empire upon the continent of Atlantis. There was rivalry in science, friendly at first, but becoming bitter with the years, as each nation flaunted its achievements in the face of each other. In a few centuries, their science had passed the point of development which exists here now. Not content with releasing a few crumbs of the binding energy of the atom, as your physicists are doing, they had learned to rotate entire masses upon the energy axis. Under the circumstances, it was inevitable that the two nations should eventually destroy each other, just as the two major nations of the Earth today are preparing to do. But this discussion must wait until we return. Our time is more than up. Already, it is requiring too much energy to keep our ship in its present position, and we cannot abandon the cargo craft. It's on the ground, and I'll open the door. So long for now, Dan. Take care of yourself until we return. So here we have our connection to some ancient mystical civilizations and a nice tie-in to some of the works of people like George Hunt Williamson. It wasn't exactly innovative to draw parallels between the supposed destruction of Atlantis and Mew, and the potential for the Atomic Age destruction of modern nations, but it's a nice alternative to the more thoroughly space-bound contactee stories that were making the rounds by the mid-50s. In the edition of the White Sands incident that I have, not a first edition, sadly, there is appended the text of a later pamphlet that contains Elon's message to the men of Earth. It's called, um, To Men of Earth, and we'll take a look at it after this brief break. If you're listening to this episode in real time, apologies for being a couple days behind schedule. It's the busy time of the semester for me, and noise from remodeling work here at Shizo Media Headquarters limited the amount of time I had to get stuff done. People seem to enjoy the UFO radio episode we did, uh, which is nice. Thanks for the feedback on that. 
You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you very much to those who've donated um, recently. It's it's much appreciated. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life, as I Gosh, I hope you know, since you're actually listening to it, is available anywhere you can find podcasts. Next time on The Saucer Life, we are sticking with contactees and talking about a woman named Greta Woodrew. As you'll hear, I was made aware of her by a listener, for which I'm grateful. It's an interesting story, and I think you'll enjoy it. Now, let's hear what Elon had to say to the men of Earth. But not the women, apparently, I guess. So, to Men of Earth, this was originally, as I mentioned, a small booklet published subsequent to the White Sands incident, but included in later printings of that book, the first being the second edition from 1960, and again in 1966 and 1992. Once again, DanielFry.com has all kinds of information like this. So, this pamphlet has a foreword which runs the risk, I think it's safe to say, of overpromising and under-delivering. Ever since the publication of the White Sands Incident, we've been besieged by the public for further information from the same source. Finally, we've prevailed upon Mr. Fry, who is a very busy man, to make written report of his subsequent contact with Elon of the extraterrestrial group. This he has done, and the content of Elon's message to the people of Earth is so filled with information of vital significance to mankind and particularly to the people of our time, that we have decided to release it to you just as we have received it, with no attempt to enlarge or embellish it in any way, and with but very little comment from Mr. Fry. While it thus becomes a very small book which may be quickly read, it will be found to be power-packed. Every sentence is vital, and there are no unnecessary words. (laughs) I think we'll be the judge of that, pal. The foreword also provides an opinion of just what kind of beings Fry, and by extension all of humanity, may be encountering. Clearly, we here have to deal with the unusually highly developed type of individuals, in all probability not of the rank and file of the inhabitants of other worlds, but rather the most advanced individuals of their sphere of life, being similar in many respects to those usually denominated masters when appearing among men. At least they certainly manifest some of the accomplishments of adeptship. At all events, they have achieved a mastery over space travel, magnetics, gravitation, and other scientific matters not likely to be possessed by the rank and file of their people any more than our advances in nuclear physics are understood by average laymen. Because we are privileged to receive a vital and spiritual message from such advanced and perfected beings, delivered with clear and prophetic insight, It behooves us to give heed while there is yet time to change the trend of events. In this way, we may yet, perhaps, avoid the pitfall from which only Michael and his angels could save us by direct intervention. An ever-increasing number of our people are becoming uneasy over the apparent impending fulfillment of prophecy and of another world war, this time of a most destructive sort. The development of nuclear weapons, guided missiles, nerve gases, and bacterial warfare does not help to allay the suspicion that we may be on the verge of a war of extermination instead of merely self-preservation and freedom. 
Like the earlier discussions of Atlantis and Mew, some elements of non-space-based spiritualism are bleeding through here. Mentions of masters and adepts, angels, prophetic insight, are freely mixed with concepts like space travel, magnetics, and gravitation. So, what does Elon have to say to the men of Earth? We begin with Daniel Fry setting the scene, reporting that his contact, the third contact with Elon, actually, he discusses here, took place on April 28, 1954. He says that there was a sense of urgency to the contact, and for the first time, he fully understood that he had, quote, a personal duty and responsibility in the effort which Elon and his friends are making to alter the natural flow of events and thus avert the Holocaust, which is otherwise inevitable, end quote. Here, Fry is a prophet, a messenger bringing word that humanity must change its ways to avoid destruction. We're going to sample some of Elon's messages to humanity. First off, the answer to the perennial question, why don't you just land on the White House lawn? From the practical standpoint, you know as well as we that if we were to land our craft near the seat of your government, we would immediately be surrounded and taken in charge by those military forces whose duty it is to protect the heads of your government from any possible danger. We would be questioned for hours, perhaps days, before any request which we might make would even be given consideration. We would be forced to display our superiority in the realm of the material science. Once this superiority had been demonstrated, the military leaders would inevitably adopt the position that it was imperative that their country acquire and protect this advanced scientific knowledge. The attitude of your government, in common with the governments of other advanced nations of your planet today, is that all new knowledge, particularly scientific knowledge, is the property of the state. This is not the fault of any individual or political faction, but is simply a philosophism of government which developed during the last two great wars upon your Earth. It was given much impetus in your country by the necessary secrecy attending the development of your nuclear weapons. However, the secrecy of military security has now grown far beyond the bounds of its reason and has become, in many cases, only an excuse to conceal anything which might embarrass any member of your governing bodies. As a matter of fact, most of the tension which exists between your nations today is the direct result of this excessive secrecy. You must realize that any information which your government might acquire concerning us, our craft, or our knowledge would be considered the most vital military secret which they had ever possessed. First, philosophism is not a word. Second, I love this. This is a really nice critique of the national security state that had emerged since the end of the Second World War. Although, I would argue that the tendencies within humanity that Elon is concerned about are probably as old as humanity itself. Elon next informs us, informs, informs us that there are three branches of the sciences, spiritual science, social science, and material science. Until the spiritual and social aspects are mastered, nothing will go right. Elon uses the contemporary geopolitical concerns of the 1950s as evidence of this. Your race is now in constant danger of total destruction by an agency which it has itself produced. Why should a people be menaced by their own creations, simply because they have not progressed far enough in the spiritual and social sciences to enable them to determine the uses to which their creations should be put? Most of the thinkers of your race are well aware of the danger inherent in the use of nuclear weapons, but there is another aspect of the problem which is not generally recognized. That's the fact that unless unity is achieved between your nations, the very existence of such weapons will eventually bring about the downfall of your civilization, even though they are never used. 
The truth of this fact can be understood by anyone who will think a little. Civilizations are built and maintained by men of vision who think and work for the future. What man will be willing to dedicate his life and his work to the benefit of generations yet unborn when the foreseeable future doesn't extend beyond the next 24 hours? He also attributes juvenile delinquency, a serious concern at the time, to this sense of extreme insecurity engendered by the nuclear standoff between the superpowers. Finally, Elon asserts that the Bible has been translated incorrectly and that many significant references to love or charity should be translated not love or charity, but as understanding. This is important because, according to Elon, quote, the vital need of your world today is simple understanding between the people of your nations. There is but little value in a treaty, a pact, or a guarantee between governments if understanding is lacking between the people, end quote. In a shocking twist, dear listener, Fry had, by this time, started up an organization called, wait for it, Understanding. Understanding was an organization Fry founded in late 1955 that was, quote, dedicated to the propagation of a better understanding among all the peoples of the earth and those who are not of earth, end quote. They had a newsletter called Understanding that first appeared in January 1956. You hold in your hand a newborn babe. This copy of Understanding, Volume 1, Number 1. It's a child born of the love of humanity and fathered by a desire to be of service. Its labors of birth were great, and it faces a struggle for life from the moment of its first breath. No matter how much love and care we, the publishers, may lavish upon it, you, the reader, will determine its eventual fate. Will it grow issue by issue into a full-size publication, brimming with articles of information and wisdom both from this earth and from higher levels? Will it carry this understanding to every portion of the globe? This is our goal. To its achievement, we pledge our faith, our utmost efforts, and such talents as we may possess. The rest is up to you. No publication can live without subscribers. The greater the number of subscribers, the larger and more complete the publication can be. Do you have friends who might be interested? Will you tell them? Do you have a news item or an article which you feel should be published in the interest of humanity? Send it along. We'll print it if we possibly can. Remember, this is your magazine, and you're a partner in the project to bring the peoples of the world closer together through the medium of mutual understanding. Copies of this first issue will be mailed to correspondents in 10 foreign countries. How soon can we report that it is reaching all countries? We'll do everything in our power. The rest is up to you. Part of the understanding organization that I've always found fascinating are the local groups that were part of the outfit, discussing and disseminating Fry's ideas. Units would invite Fry to be a speaker. The newsletter was published regularly for decades. It was an amazing operation. Issues of understanding had saucer sighting reports, editorials and articles from Fry and others about the space people, philosophy articles, and increasingly, as we get into the 1960s, stories about Fry's scientific ideas about the technology of space travel. There was also poetry. Oh, you, you know I like the saucer poetry, such as this poem entitled Down to Earth by a Joseph Krengel from the May 1957 issue. Flying saucers make it known that we've much to learn, alas. God, we thought, made us alone. 
this illusion too shall pass. In 1956, as the Understanding Organization was growing steadily, Fry published Steps to the Stars. And this book, and it seems the deeper I go into Daniel Fry's work, the more I realize why I'd never gone deeper into Daniel Fry's work. This book um, is about the science that will allow humans to truly explore space. And while this science is derived from the knowledge gained from Elon, this is not a contact ebook, which is probably the most interesting thing about it to me. Because if I'm going to be honest, the science here is beyond my ability to stay awake for. Most science is beyond my ability to stay awake for, so I'm not, I'm not dissing Dan Fry. There are a couple tidbits I want to mention, though. Listen to this. Actually, the rocket has been obsolete for centuries. There's not been a single basic advance in the rocket concept since the year 1214 AD when the invading hordes of Genghis Khan were met by the military ordnance rockets of the Chinese defenders in their walled cities more than 700 years ago. True, we've produced stronger combustion chambers, we've improved slightly the shape of the Venturi, and we have developed fuels with considerably higher specific impulse, but we have done nothing to advance the basic concept. We're still propelling our boat by throwing rocks over the stern. Men now living will stand upon the surface of Mars and Venus, but they won't go there in a rocket. There are better and simpler ways. I know we say snark when justified, but I really don't think I'm being snarky or sarcastic here when I say that this assertion that rockets hadn't advanced between the 13th century and the 20th century, I think that's absurd. And my evidence is the fact that Fry points out several actual advances in rocketry, but then to preserve his point, he dismisses all of them saying, well, they aren't advances to the basic concept. Well, of course not, because the basic concept is a rocket. He's basically saying that rockets haven't advanced because they're still rockets. That's how I read this. Now, if I was being snarky, I might say this. Actually, the wheel has been obsolete for millennia. There's not been a single basic advance in the wheel concept since the year 3500 BC when merchants and nomadic herding groups roamed around the Eastern Hemisphere more than 5,000 years ago. True, we've produced truer wheels, we've improved slightly the smoothness of the bearings used in axles, and we've developed advanced engines that spin wheels fast enough to have Formula One races. But we have done nothing to advance the basic concept. We are still moving people and cargo around by using round things that roll, reducing the amount of friction and resistance. Men now living will go to the grocery store, but they will not go there on wheels. There are better and simpler ways. That actually took longer to come up with than you might expect. So what's the science that Fry presents in Steps to the Stars? Here's an example. It's the only one I'm using. So if this tickles your fancy, head over to danielfry.com and read the whole thing. Mass is defined as resistance to change in the existing state of motion. It is measured by the amount of energy which is required to produce a given change in velocity. All matter has the property of mass, but not all mass has the property of matter. For the purposes of this discussion, we will postulate that there are two types of mass, inertial mass, which is simply the property of resistance to change in a state of motion, and the mass inherent in matter, which we will call Newtonian mass, because it includes all mass that obeys the original laws laid down by Sir Isaac Newton. 
Since the reader may be under the impression that all mass obeys the Newtonian laws, let us pause here long enough to examine the facts and to point out the differences in the properties of inertial and Newtonian mass. Oh, no, please do not do so. Not on my account. Actually, as I was recording that little segment, it occurred to me that, that what it sounds like more than anything, I don't know if you remember, there, there's an episode of Seinfeld where George has to read a book about risk management to present to the Yankees organization at a big meeting. And he um, he gets the audio book and it just reminds me of his risk management audio book. Um, there's two types of mass, inertial mass and uh, Newtonian mass. We have to talk about what mass means. Oh my gosh. It's like it's like my physics textbook in high school, but I don't have to read it to get good grades. I just have to read it because I'm doing this podcast and it hurts. Okay. So, the science doesn't bother me as much, honestly, as Fry's concentrated barrage of passive voice here. And I've got a real aversion to books that cling to the third person and call the reader the reader. Just a pet peeve. So in this book, as I mentioned before, Fry does not actually discuss his own contact experiences. In fact, he tries to present his ideas sort of independent of actual specific saucer sightings or claims or reports. He does discuss the issue of UFOs, but really tries to emphasize that this is not a UFO book. Listen to this. It is not within the province of this book to enumerate or describe the large number of observations which have been accepted as reliable by those who have investigated them, particularly since this task has already been undertaken by competent men whose reports are available to the public. I refer particularly to the report on unidentified flying objects by Edward J. Ruppelt, former head of the Air Force Project Blue Book, and The Great Saucer Conspiracy by Major Donald Kehoe. A number of other earnest and sincere men have spent considerable time and effort in relaying to the public the precise nature of the reported observations. A contactee is recommending that saucer-interested readers check out Kehoe and Ruppelt. We are through the looking glass here, people. He really wants this to be taken seriously as a treatise on advanced space travel technology, and I, I think that deserves some respect. Somewhere, there's a parallel universe, probably, I think, where Dan Fry skipped the entire contactee bit and went straight to gravity and flying saucers and explaining different types of mass, and in 2020 is regarded as an interesting figure in the alternative science field, rather than being lumped in as a contactee, um, not to mention one of the duller contactees. In 1960, Fry published Atoms, Galaxies, and Understanding. Like Steps to the Stars, this isn't a contact ebook. It's more science, and the subtitle is Cosmology in its Simplest Form. In the interest of time, I will just say that if you liked the excerpt above, you will love this book. While Fry stopped writing new space books in the 60s, understanding would continue to grow. We know from our Reinhold Schmidt episode that at least one understanding unit, as they were called, hosted a talk by our favorite saucer, Felon. In 1961, understanding held a convention which drew over a thousand people. And there were, in that year, there were 43 groups around the world. One really interesting thing I learned from that Daniel Fry biography is that the understanding unit in Sweden was the first one outside of the United States. And their collection of books would evolve 
into the archives for UFO research, which exists today, and without their careful scanning and posting of UFO material from around the world, this podcast probably would not exist today. In 1961, Fry would get into the housing market, investing in a development corporation in Merlin, Oregon. Fry and his family would move there in 1962. Within a couple years, Fry and his wife Elma divorced, and this led to a new phase in his life. As he embarked on worldwide lecture tours and, and talking tours around the country, and, it, and he produced a radio program and developed a health device called the Home Masseur, which was a Radio Shack AM radio with copper mesh pads wired to it. These, supposedly, would be placed on a body's acupressure points to fix all kinds of problems. Sometime during the 1950s, a film version of Two Men of Earth was produced with Dan Fry making a cameo as himself. It's not out there on the internet, at least that I've found, but the film can be licensed from the WPA Film Library. Just for fun, I messed around on their website and um, sort of attempted to determine how much it would cost someone to license the material for like a DVD release. All I've been able to learn is that if you do anything on their site, you have to register a, an email address. And once you mess with a particular clip, you will get three emails in 12 hours asking what kind of project you're working on and urging you to sort of close the deal on licensing this old contactee footage. Understanding as an organization persisted even as the contactee movement and golden age ufology in general declined in the late 60s and early 70s. In 1972, Fry was the vice presidential nominee for the Universal Party and the running mate of Gabriel Green, who had a history of mixing saucers and politics. They didn't win, which I attribute mostly to the fact that they were only on the ballot in Iowa, where they received 199 votes. They also received 21 write-in votes from California. In 1973, Fry moved to Tonopah, Arizona to care for Enid Smith, a friend and devotee who was in poor health. She donated over 50 acres of land in Tonopah to him, and I don't know how to pronounce Tonopah, 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 I don't know. So he, she donated 50 acres of land to him, and he began to develop the property into the Tonopah Cultural Center. He worked on solar energy projects, he had plans to build a scale model of a pyramid, and the center turned into kind of a compound for Fry's, I don't want to say followers, that makes it sound like a cult, and it really wasn't. It was more of a commune, and by the mid-70s, Fry was seeking to hand over the day-to-day -day running of understanding to someone else, and in 1978, in an echo of Dan's early life, fire struck the compound. It was found to be arson. And what's really sad is that the compound's library burned, taking thousands of donated books with it. The newsletter continued in stops and starts, but finally ended with the June 1989 issue. Fry wrote the following in an editorial entitled The Sad Time of Parting. It seems there is to be a period of peaceful negotiation between the Soviet Union and the U.S., which will last just as long as the Soviets' ability to cajole the U.S. into making loans that never have to be repaid. 
A short study of their abilities in this field leads to the conclusion that the area of peaceful negotiation may be a long one. It seems, therefore, to be a good time to discontinue the monthly newsletter in favor of an effort to catch up with the writing of a book which I began so energetically several years ago and which is now about half done. Neither the U.S. or the Soviet Union won a war, neither could afford it, so there may be a long period of peaceful relations during which I may finish my book and do other things that badly need doing. The title of the book will be When in Cairo, and will deal mostly with the problems and concerns of Elon in his struggle to keep the world at peace. Although Elon is not the hero of the book, he's the principal actor on the stage. There's another book waiting patiently in the wings which will be known as The Tachyon Drive, which is an educational science book about an astronaut who started out for one place and because of the tricks of the automatic launching system known as Tobar, wound up somewhere else. These two books, together with a myriad of other duties, should keep me busy until something else happens. To refer back to When in Cairo, it's about 70% true and 30% fiction, which is necessary to avoid disclosure of the true names of some of the characters who still need security. But those of you who have read Two Men of Earth will find little difficulty in determining who all the characters actually are. It is true that the situation in China is not good, but at least it does not threaten world war and everyone, even the Chinese officials involved are hopeful that the violence can be halted before any other country becomes involved. In any event, we wish the best of everything for you and yours. Those books would never be finished. Um, I really want to learn about Tobar, the automatic launching system. And, uh, you know, as, as you sort of listen to that, you sort of, the situation in China is not good. And, sort of took me a minute to realize he meant oh Tiananmen Square because it didn't it didn't fit in my mind that a 1950s contactee would be making commentary about the Chinese protests in Tiananmen Square this is a 1950s contactee who was sending out his last newsletter when i was 14 years old and that just blows my mind his health declined um and Fry suffered a series of strokes, and he died in 1992 at the age of 84. And for me, the key to Fry's significance is the longevity of his organization. And I think that's mostly down to the, to the way that Fry's contact experiences were the impetus for all of this, but they weren't the driving force. That driving force were his ideas about science and anti-gravity and his desire for universal understanding. And that kept his followers' attention after the luster of the contactee era had faded. There are links in the show notes. Um, link, I think. Because honestly, DanielFry.com is all you need. And I highly recommend reading Sean Donovan's biography of Fry, which you can purchase at the site. It's the ultimate resource for everything you ever wanted to know about Daniel Fry and his theories. Oh, and because somebody's going to mention it, yes, he claimed to have a PhD. No, it wasn't real. So there you go. Thanks for listening. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, but since I was so late in producing this episode, he, uh, he, he bears no responsibility for any of this whatsoever. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time. Keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.